Good morning, everyone. It's time for us to begin. This is our final lesson in our study on the Israel of God. We took 13 lessons uh, to go through this book. I hope you've enjoyed it. A very good book, I think. Uh, we will start into a new study next week. We're going to go through a book uh, written by J.C. Ryle called A Call to Prayer. It will be a nice uh, change of pace. This study has been a little bit more on the academic side, and so this book we're going to go through, it's short, it's very warm and simple and devotional. I think we'll enjoy that uh, very much. I can't remember what exactly we decided. Maybe four weeks devoted to this short study on J.C. Ryle's book, A Call to Prayer. Uh, there are, or at least were, books available in the back. I don't know if they're still there. Um, Danny, you have one. Could you hold one up for me? I didn't bring mine with me. Oh, that's fine. Never mind. Does anybody have it? Oh, there it is. Gloria has it. All right. A Call to Prayer by J.C. Ryle. Uh, you'll notice that the outline today is very, very brief. Uh, just one page. Uh, the thing that uh, Robertson does here in this uh, last chapter is offer 12 propositions, 12 concluding propositions. And all of these propositions, of course, are based upon everything we've learned in this study. Uh, so these are propositions. Nothing here is proven from Scripture. Uh, that's already been done, of course. And so I thought what I would do is just move through these propositions with you uh, rather quickly and see if you have any questions uh, from this study. I, I am trying to do that more, where instead of finishing a study and moving on to the next thing, you know, it's nice to have one final lesson where... There's a little bit of time given for, for dialogue uh, before wrapping a study up and moving on to the next. So this works out really well. Let's open in a word of prayer and then we'll go through these 12 propositions. Father in heaven, I thank you for this study that we have so enjoyed. I pray that it helps us uh, in many ways uh, to think carefully and critically about current events. Uh, maybe even more so that we would think carefully about the church and her identity and her relationship to your workings in days past. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would see ourselves as the Israel of God, uh, that we would see that we have been grafted in uh, to Israel through faith in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Uh, we thank you for this uh, rich heritage that is now ours. Uh, we thank you for the many blessings that come to us through faith in Jesus, the Messiah. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in a worthy manner, to be holy as you are holy, to be careful as we sojourn in this world as, as exiles, as pilgrims, so that we would bring glory, honor, and praise to you, O God. Help us in this concluding lesson, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Twelve propositions based upon what we've learned already. Proposition number one, the Church of Jesus Christ... Embracing the elect of God from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds is a part of the Messianic kingdom of Christ, even though the church does not exhaust the dimensions of Christ's kingdom. So, Christ has a kingdom in this world. And who are the citizens of this kingdom? They are all who have faith in Jesus, uh, the Messiah. Uh, they are the ones who have professed Him to be Lord and Savior. They are a part of this Messianic kingdom. Uh, your ethnicity does not matter as it pertains to this kingdom of Christ under this new covenant era. 
the little remark, even though the church does not exhaust the dimensions of this kingdom, I, I think what Robertson is saying here is that Christ rules and reigns supreme over all. We have to remember that. He is, he is Lord Most High. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto Him. Uh, and yet He rules particularly with, within the church. And so He is ruling and reigning particularly within the church today. Where is His kingdom manifest? It's in the church um, but yet there's more to the story. He rules and reigns with all authority in heaven and earth, having been given unto Him. And His kingdom has been uh, present and growing since His first coming, and it will be consummated at the end. So there's more complexity here to what Robertson is saying, but uh, this is a very good proposition to begin with. Proposition number one, it's probably given first place for a reason. Proposition number two, the modern Jewish state is not a part of the Messianic Kingdom of Jesus Christ. That there might be a controversial statement. You, you probably know that. It is a controversial statement. It shouldn't be amongst Bible-believing Christians, but today it is. The modern Jewish state is not a part of the Messianic Kingdom of Christ. And this should be clear to all. I continue to quote Robertson. Even though it may be affirmed <clears throat> excuse me, that this particular civil government came into being under the sovereignty of the God of the Bible, it would be a denial of Jesus' affirmation that His kingdom is not of this world, John 18.36. It would be a denial of this to assert that this government is a part of His messianic kingdom. So, did God bring uh, the modern uh, Jewish state of Israel uh, into existence in 1948. Well, of course, He is Lord Most High. He is sovereign over all. Um, <clears throat> he causes kingdoms to rise and He causes kingdoms to fall. This is common to Him. Uh, this is what He has been doing throughout human history. Excuse me. But uh, to say that the modern Jewish state of Israel is a part of the Messianic kingdom of Jesus Christ is to ignore the clear teaching of the Bible. Christ's kingdom is not of this world, and we have already established in Proposition number 1 that it is those who have faith in Jesus who belong to this kingdom, and there is no such thing going on within the modern state of Israel. No such honoring of Jesus as the Messiah. There may be Christians within the modern state of Israel, no doubt, thanks be to God for His mercy shown to them. Uh, but certainly the modern state of Israel is not uh, characterized by faith in Jesus the Messiah. Uh, again, I say that should be clear to all. Proposition number three, it cannot be established from Scripture that the birth of the modern state of Israel is a prophetic precursor to the mass conversion of Jewish people. Uh, remember, uh, we looked, I think in two lessons at, I can't remember how I broke it up actually, let me just say this. Remember, we did look at Revelation chapter 20, and we asked the question, should we expect a future millennium where a return will, a focus will return to ethnic Israel? And with the help of Robertson, we said, no, Revelation 20 teaches no such thing, but rather teaches that the, the millennium, uh, this thousand-year period of time, um, is, is symbolic of the church age. It began at Christ's first coming and will conclude when He returns. Uh, he, is, he is ruling and reigning now. Um, this is the clear teaching of Scripture. He ascended and sat down at the Father's right hand. And then we did turn our attention to Romans chapter 11, which is another text that is often used to teach that in the future there will be a return uh, to a focus upon ethnic Israel. And demonstrated with Robertson's help that 
the text teaches no such thing. But rather, uh, that all Israel will be saved in this way, uh, in the way that God has done things in the Old Covenant and, and in the New. And Israel there is a reference to the true Israel of God. Um, there will be this time where there is a partial hardening that comes upon Israel and the Gentiles are grafted in and uh, some within Israel, the elect within Israel, are provoked to jealousy. Um, and the text does not tell us what will happen next there in Romans chapter 11, but the rest of the Bible does. Uh, we see from other scripture texts that the thing that will happen after this period of time, this new covenant era, will be the consummation of all things in new heavens and earth. So we looked at that in Romans 11, and we looked at Revelation 20, two texts that are often used in this way. And basically to conclude that whatever we think about the modern state of Israel, we cannot see it as a prophetic precursor to the mass conversion of Jewish people, biblically speaking. Whatever your opinion is, uh, we cannot make this case from the Scriptures. Proposition number four, the land of the Bible served in a typological role as a model of the consummate realization of the purposes of God for His redeemed people that encompasses the whole of the cosmos. Because of the inherently limited scope of the land of the Bible, it is not to be regarded as having continuing significance in the realm of redemption other than its function as a teaching model. It's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? But you've heard me preach this way a lot, that when we look at the land that was given to Israel under the Old Covenant, we're to see it as typological. Does anyone want to try to say what that means? I talk that way a lot, and I'm always afraid that I use words like that and no one gets the meaning of them. Does anyone want to try to give an explanation of what it means that the land that was given to Israel under the Old Covenant had a typological dimension? You'd make my day if you got it. Tom. <laughs> Okay, there's, like a, there's an illustration built into, to, I'm repeating it for the sake of the recording. There's an illustration within Old Covenant Israel that conveys truth about what God's doing and His plan of redemption. Yeah? Good. That's, that's good. Any other thoughts? Melissa? Uh, well, I think it's kind of like types and shadows. Types and shadows. Yes, I, I use that terminology when I preach to um, a type is something that awaits a future antitype. Like there's kind of an image that awaits fulfillment. There's something greater to come. So we talk, well, the scriptures talk about Adam as being a type of Christ. So Adam as the federal or covenantal head of the covenant of works anticipated the second Adam, Christ, who would be the covenantal head, the federal head of the covenant of grace. There's all sorts of things like that in there. You know, you know what, um, oh, go ahead, Lindsay. Yes, when we say that uh, the land of Old Covenant Israel is typological or the, that it's filled with types and shadows, we're saying that it's, it's an earthly precursor uh, or symbol of greater realities yet to come, heavenly and spiritual and eternal realities. You know, what, what Robertson is doing throughout this book is called biblical theology. We have systematic theology, which takes 
the teaching of Scripture on a given subject and gathers it together so that we might know everything the Bible has to say about God or man or sin. Systematic theology is topical. What biblical theology does is it traces themes and their development throughout the Scriptures. It's a very important discipline. It, it's, it, it connects with systematic theology. You really can't do one without the other. Um, but it's a very important discipline. And you, and you hear this come out when I preach, and you hear it in Robertson's book, even though it might not be called by that name. This is biblical theology. So, for example, do you remember in our study through Genesis and Exodus, how we noticed that within the tabernacle that Israel was called to build, there were lots of symbols used that, that pointed in multiple directions. Do you guys remember this? How when you pay careful attention to the construction of that tabernacle, um, it was constructed according to the pattern shown to Moses on the mountain. Remember, this was something that God designed. Do you remember how that little tabernacle that Israel built and carried around with them through the wilderness, it pointed back to what? The Garden of Eden, remember? Uh, it also pointed up to what? To heaven. Like if you took the tabernacle and turned it like this, there would be this progression into the heavenly holy of holies. And then in, there is a sense in which the tabernacle also looked forward to what? To Jesus, yes. It typified Christ, especially in the sacrificial system there and the way to enter into the Holy of Holies. But it pointed forward to the new heavens and earth that would be ours through faith in Jesus the Christ, who, who is the one who tore the curtain you know, of, of the temple and to um, well, he didn't do it, but he caused it to be torn um, by God because of his finished work. So, I bring that up to you uh, right now just to remind you of this whole idea of typology. The, the tabernacle was typological. It was sim- filled with symbolism that pointed back and up and forward. But we can say the very same thing about the whole of the land of Israel. That land was the kingdom of God typified. When, Christ, when John the Baptist and Christ arrived on the scene, what did they preach? What did they say regarding the kingdom? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's almost here. So what does that tell us about the past from that vantage point regarding the kingdom? Was the kingdom of heaven present prior to Jesus and John the Baptist arriving on the scene? If it's at hand, if it's almost here, that means it, it, it wasn't here. Not in power. But the kingdom was present in symbolic ways, in, in typological ways. It was prefigured on earth in the kingdom of Israel. The land was a type of the kingdom, territorially speaking. David, the king, was a type of Christ the King. The priests were a type of a greater priest yet to come. Christ the High Priest in the order of Melchizedek. The sacrifices were types. You see, that's how we're to interpret Old Covenant Israel. God did a real work amongst them, an important work. People were saved by trusting, not in the animal sacrifices, but in the things that they typified. The thing, the thing that they typified, Christ Jesus the Lord, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we have to remember all this stuff. And, and what Robertson is here saying is that 
listen, to, to teach that we're going to return to a focus upon that piece of land is, I mean, this is kind of a harsh way of saying it, but it's ridiculous. It, it's, it's running against the, the current of redemptive history. We have progressed from, from type to anti-type, from shadow to substance, you see. So we've progressed. Why would we go back to the typological, therefore, if the substance has come? And who is the substance? Christ is the substance of all these things, and Christ and His reward. It's wonderful. Maybe we won't have time for questions and answers. No, there's a little discussion happening here, and that's good. Okay, proposition number five. Rather than understanding predictions about the return of Israel to the land in terms of geopolitical reestablishment of the state of Israel, these prophecies are more properly interpreted as finding consummate fulfillment at the restoration of all things that will accompany the resurrection of believers at the return of Christ. Did he say more? That, that little quote seems like there's more surrounding it. Let's see, 194... No, it's just stated like that. Okay, what is Robertson alluding to here? He's, he's alluding to these um, Old Testament prophecies that do speak in terms of Israel returning to the land and being blessed and flourishing. You read the prophets of Isaiah and of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and there is this kind of language that's used. Um, Israel's in a, in a bad state right now, but they're going to flourish in the future. So we could take that to mean that there's going to be a return to a focus on ethnic Israel in the future, so that ethnic Israel will focus in the land of Palestine, right? We could take it that way, but how does the New Testament seem to take those prophecies? How does the New Testament seem to interpret those prophecies that are speaking of the flourishing of Israel in the future? Anyone? Well, throughout our study, we have, we have seen that uh, the, the word Israel can be used in multiple ways. It can be used to refer to an ethnic people, but also it can be used to refer to the true Israel of God. And so again, if, if it... G Gina, did you have something? The spread of the gospel? Yes, it's fulfilled in the spread of the gospel. But again, if we understand that Israel of the Old Covenant is typological, then then will Israel be blessed in the future? Will Israel flourish in the future? Will Israel return to her land in the future? Yes, in a typological sense. Now that Christ has come, how will these things be fulfilled? Will they be fulfilled through the preaching of the gospel and the, the, the gospel going to the very furthest reaches of the earth? Israel will return to her land, not in that minimalistic sense of returning to the land that was promised to Abraham and procured by Joshua, but in a, a, a a maximal sense, so that the land that will be inherited by uh, Israel, the true Israel of God, will be the new heavens and earth. That's the way the New Testament speaks. Uh, in fact, the New Testament is clear that Abraham believed God, he understood the promises, and he awaited a new creation. That's what Abraham was waiting for. He could look at the land that was promised him and see that it was not the end goal, but the end goal was a new heavens and new earth ultimately. And of course, that makes sense in the storyline of Scripture because Scripture does not begin at Genesis chapter 12. Scripture begins at Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made Adam. All of humanity descended from Adam. All of humanity was fallen in Adam. 
And so God's redemptive purposes were never to just take back a little sliver of land or to take back one people. That's a minimalistic view. In fact, the Lord's purpose was to take back the whole heavens and earth. And He would start with Palestine. And His aim was to redeem a people for Himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And He would do it through the Hebrews, you see. That's the storyline of Scripture. The Bible does not begin at Genesis 12. Just remember that. There's something profound. Uh, it begins at Genesis chapter 1. And we have to interpret God's redemptive activities in light of, of that reality. So these passages of Scripture, these prophecies that are found uh, throughout... The, the, I almost said it. I almost said the Gospel of Isaiah. Um, it's been called that uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek because you should read through the book of Isaiah. It, it, it feels like you're reading the Gospel. There are so many wonderful prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. And, and, and the prophet Isaiah speaks in terms that are just marvelous. It, 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 if you read carefully, it's clear that God is going to do something in the future from Isaiah's vantage point that far exceeds anything He had done under the Old Covenant. Um, God's people and God's kingdom is going to explode uh, to, to the furthest reaches of the earth and Gentile peoples are going to be brought in. It just comes up again and again in Isaiah's prophecies. Okay. Proposition number six, no reestablished priesthood and no reinstituted sacrificial system will be introduced that would serve to provide a proper supplement to the currently established priesthood of Jesus Christ and His final sacrifice. Some of these dispensationalists will say, we're going to return to temple worship, there's going to be a priesthood again, and there's going to be animal sacrifices again. And... Um, but that's not going to take the place of Christ. It's just going to kind of supplement Christ. And, and to speak very bluntly, we should say that that's ridiculous. This sacrifice that Christ has made is once for all. It is final. It far, it far exceeds the value and worth of the Old Covenant sacrifices. And if you would see that the Old Covenant sacrifices and the priesthood and the temple worship were typological and Christ is a fulfillment, then you would get this. There's no reason to go back so, brothers and sisters, I, I think you would agree with me. We should not celebrate this kind of thing. We should not hope for this kind of thing. To hope for this kind of thing, the rebuilding of the temple, the reestablishment of the old covenant uh, priesthood and sacrificial system, I, I mean, it really is a denial of Jesus Christ. That is what it is. It's a denial of Jesus Christ that He has come. It's a denial of His person. It's a denial of His offices of prophet, priest, and king. It's a denial of His finished work. Um, this probably sounds strange to you. Do, you do understand how prevalent these views are within modern evangelicalism, right? Very prevalent. Becky? Um, on that topic, is it only like those modern It's a really good question, Becky, um, an interesting one, and I'll restate it. Is it only the, some of these modern evangelicals, and I use that term very loosely, by the way. It's not all evangelicals believe this, but is it only the modern evangelicals that believe that we're going to return to a, a temple worship, etc., or do Jews believe it? There, I'm sure there are some Jews that believe it, but not all, certainly. I, I've, along, along with studying um, uh, this book in preparation to, to teach it, I've been listening to things and reading things on um, Christian Zionism. 
really interesting movement that's taken place in this country, Christian Zionism. And these are those Christians that, because of their eschatology, because they are pre-tribulational, pre-millennial uh, in their eschatology, they have it in their mind that in order for Christ to return, first these things have to happen. One of them being the Jews return to the land, the temple has to be rebuilt, priesthood, sacrifices, etc. Also Armageddon. Um, there has to be a great war. Um, and some of the real extreme Christian Zionists seem to not only um, accept the fact that there will be wars, but they seem to be eager to make them happen. Sounds crazy, right? It, it's true. Some of our presidents have been very influenced by Christian Zionists. So it affects our foreign policy. It has within the, in the past. Christian Zionism has definitely affected our foreign policy. Uh, and I bring it up now in response to your question, Becky, just to say that Christian Zionism predates Jewish Zionism. Christian Zionism came about before Jewish Zionism came about. Isn't that weird? And the, the Jewish Zionism is power, a powerful movement today as well. These are those Jews who argue that they have a right to the land because the Bible says so. Right? In fact, you, you, you hear um, Netanyahu speaking this way <clears throat> even recently using um, biblical language, citing biblical texts to justify his, his war against the Palestinians in response to that terror attack. Uh, talking about them as if they are the Philistines that need to be ejected from the land. He's a, Christ, he's a Jewish Zionist. But there's a lot of Orthodox Jews today who want nothing to do with that movement. They don't like it. So it's a, there's a complexity here. But I think it is interesting that Christian Zionism actually predated Jewish Zionism. And it was brought about, it came to, it came to exist through this um, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial eschatology that so many of us were brought up with. I kind of answered your question, um, but not really. I just... Yeah, well, the answer is no, not all Jews are, are rooting for this sort of thing. And not all Jews are uh, Jewish Zionists. Not all Jews are happy with the behavior of Israel presently. And that behavior is largely being driven by this, this theological perspective uh, that the Jews still have a right to the land and they still have the, the right to do the kinds of things that Joshua did under the Old Covenant because those principles still stand. They still apply. Interesting, right? Um, there's a reason I'm bringing this teaching to you. I, I, don't, I don't really want us to get caught up in bad things as Christians today. Uh, as some of these current events take place, we, we need to be concerned with justice. We need to be concerned with um, promoting justice. And not with just getting behind peoples and movements and governments because uh, the Bible says so. No, it doesn't actually say so. So that argument just that, that needs to be set to the side. And once you take that argument to the side, you're able to just look more objectively at some of these situations and ask, is this right? 
Is it right for the modern state of Israel to view the Palestinians as Philistines who can be driven to the north and to the south and carpet bombed? Is it right for the defense minister of Israel to stand up and say, these people are dogs, these people are animals, and we will treat them as such? Did you, any of you see that? Early on, right after the terror attacks, any of you see the Israeli defense minister, whoever he was, talking that way? Netanyahu as well. And I'm thinking to myself, man, that sounds an awful lot like the kind of language used by Germans a while ago in regard to another ethnicity, namely the Jews. I don't know if we should be about that. And yet most of, uh, most, let me take that back, many evangelicals will get behind Israel no matter what they do because they have this view, the Bible says they must. God called Abraham, whoever blesses Abraham will be blessed, whoever curses Abraham will be cursed. And who is Abraham according to their warped theological system? Ethnic Jews. And I would want to say to my evangelical brethren who believe that, read the New Testament. The true children of Abraham are those who have faith in Jesus the Messiah. They are the true children of Abraham. And whoever blesses Abraham will be blessed, and whoever curses Abraham will be cursed. Who is Abraham? Well, Abraham was Abraham. By the way, that promise was especially for him. But it is the church. It is the church, not an ethnic group of people, not a, not a um, modern state filled with pagans, who many of them have no faith in God at all. Many of them persecute Orthodox Jews and Christians. And so I think, well, I, I'm on a hobby horse here, and I'll just keep riding it. Um, <clears throat> a lot of these evangelicals woke up during 2020 and the, 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 the pandemic um, they woke up to how tyrannical our own government could act. And what I would say is they need to wake up to the, to the fact that Israel's modern government could act tyrannical too. I, I mean, I, I grew up um, hearing about the book of Revelation from that pre-tribulational, pre-millennial uh, perspective. And I remember one of the questions being asked is, where's the United States in the book of Revelation? Nowhere to be found. I mean, we know Russia is here because they're the beast. <laughs> we know Gorbachev is there because he's got that funny mark on his head. Y'all remember that? I mean, come on, this stuff is worthy to be mocked a little bit. And, and we're well beyond Soviet Union and Gorbachev now, and there's other theories as to what. It's just a, a, a bad interpretation of the book altogether. The United States of America is in the book of Revelation. The modern state of Israel is in the book of Revelation. In fact, all the nations of the earth are in the book of Revelation whenever they tend to act in a tyrannical fashion. The beasts are the political powers that persecute throughout human history. The false prophet, they are those who teach false doctrine. The harlot symbolizes the seductiveness of this world. And the beast, the false prophet, and the harlot do the bidding of the dragon and it's been going on since the dawn of time. It's been going on since the dawn of time. And so, some of this old covenant uh, symbolism is picked up by the book of Revelation, reminding us of, 
of Pharaoh in Egypt, reminding us of Babylon, picking it up and applying it to Rome in the day that the book was written. And it's been true ever since then that governments tend to drift into tyranny. Uh, political rulers do, and governments tend to persecute and use their power to persecute. Why? Because they want to be in control. They want to have the power. And when the citizens of their state begin to give supreme allegiance to Jesus Christ as king, they don't like it. They don't like it. And so, brothers and sisters, maybe one thing I could say to you right now is eschatology does matter. Eschatology does matter. In fact, it ends up having a really powerful impact upon our day-to-day, how we view current events, what we think politically, what we're willing to get behind as it pertains to the, the foreign policy of our own government, etc., etc. That was a hobby horse. And I, I don't apologize for it. This is a, it's very important stuff. And there's a reason I said I, I, we need to go through this. You need to know the truth concerning these things. Tom. Many of them women and children, Tom. So I appreciate, I'm glad you're talking that way. That is my concern. It is a complex situation. We should oppose terrorism. We should oppose genocide. We should oppose the killing of civilians whenever it happens. But if you turn on the news media in this country, likewise, you're going to get one side of the story. And I think, not always, but... but, but we also have to, we have to look. That's what I'm saying. We should be concerned about justice. And it, it's just it's so dangerous to have this theological system that says we must support this group because the Bible is dangerous. It's a very complex situation. Israel is complex. There are a lot of uh, Israelis who are very much opposed to the current administration and hate what they see happening. They, they see the, the injustice in it. And yes, a, a nation has a right to defend itself. Well, no kidding. Why does that even need to be said? Of course it does. That's not what we're talking about here in this current situation. We, you know, there has to be a, a just response. And, um, There's an interesting history that I, I think a lot of uh, Christians should look into as it pertains to how Israel came to have the land in 1948, what some of the motivating factors were f- for that, who was there? Who was ejected from their land? We, we should be open to hearing that story. There have been Jews living in that land, yes, but we're talking about a new, um, a new government being set up in that place and people being driven out of their homeland. Yeah, I, it's very complex. This is the thing you're emphasizing, and I completely agree with that. 
we need to acknowledge the complexity, but we can't we can't start with the wrong um, presupposition. You know that. Uh, these these theological presuppositions are, are very dangerous if they're wrong. They could lead us to getting behind things that we ought not to get behind as Christians. I better move on. All all really good thoughts, Tom. And I, I just appreciate that it is complex and there's injustice on both sides. Yes. Well, I think uh, what we're taking from the study, because of the complexity, we're taking from the study is how to interpret the days that we live in and how to look back at things. Like what you're saying, I'm understanding. Yeah, there's uh, geopolitical issues, but like what you're saying with it, we have to interpret it in the proper way, with the proper biblical understanding, and not approach it. Yes. All good. I think you guys get it. What I hear you saying, Tom, is exactly what I think. Um, it's complex. We have to be about justice. I guess I would just want to warn the members of this church to be very careful with, with, with and I've used this term before, beware of propaganda. Beware of propaganda. Our governments are very good at propaganda. They know how to control a population. They know how to influence a population. And they're very crafty. And so we have to just be very careful before jumping into something, getting behind something. Um, we, we have to go to the Scriptures. We have to consider them very carefully. We have to recognize the complexity of these issues. We have to ask the question, is there another side to this story? Um, more and more I'm seeing that we have to be very careful here. Um, be, beware of the propaganda. I, I listened to something recently on the history of the Ryrie Study Bible. <laughs> Pretty fascinating. Like this dispensationalism stuff took off largely because of Charles Ryrie and his, and his study Bible and the popularity of that. And, and just looking into the history of, of how that movement took off and how it really took over evangelicalism and how it ended up influencing foreign policy and presidents, a political party, it's really interesting to look into. It is a complex situation, but we as Christians, we, we just have to be very careful. The evil one is sly, very sly. And some of these false doctrines um, end up having a massive impact upon our, our lives and, and, and the world in which we live. Let me move on. <clears throat> Proposition number seven. No worship practices that place Jewish believers in a category different from Gentile believers can be a legitimate worship form among the redeemed people of God. I say amen to that. There is one people of God. And there is to be one church that is unified. That's what we're to strive after. Uh, the church cannot be divided up into Jew and Gentile. Uh, that runs counter to the clear teaching of the New Testament. And so we should strive for unity uh, within the church, especially, especially as it pertains to amongst these ethnicities. <clears throat> yes, Tom. Messianic Jewish fellowships, do they restrict membership to Jews only? I, I don't know. Not that I, I don't think so. 
I, I would be shocked if they did. Uh, my complaint about some of these Messianic Jewish fellowships is if and when they begin to insist upon incorporating Old Covenant practices in, in the worship of, of God. I think if Jews want to retain some of their traditions from Old, old Covenant times, fine, but the, the New Covenant worship of God is to be separated from these things and not insisted upon. And that's clear in the Scriptures. Circumcision is nothing. Um, what you eat doesn't matter as it pertains to the forbidden foods under the Old Covenant, etc. So, um, no, I don't think they restrict membership, but some of these Messianic fellowships probably incorporate some of these Old Covenant um, elements into their worship. And I'd say that's a major problem that runs counter to the teaching of the New Testament. These things have passed away. So, Jewish uh, congregations, Messianic Jewish congregations, I, I wish we, we, we just wouldn't make distinctions like this under the New Covenant era. Proposition number eight, the future Messianic kingdom shall include as citizens on an equal basis both Jews and Gentile believers, even as they are incorporated equally into the present manifestation of Christ's kingdom. Okay, Jews and Gentiles are equal. Yes, clear teaching of Paul. Proposition number nine, the future manifestation of the Messianic kingdom of Christ cannot include a distinctively Jewish aspect that would as distinguish the peoples and practices of Jewish believers from their Gentile counterparts. Uh, yeah, so this really uh, does away with the idea that there's going to be a future millennium where a focus is returned to ethnic Israel. Proposition number 10, the future Messianic kingdom will embrace equally the whole of the newly created cosmos and will not experience a special manifestation of any sort in the region of the promised land. Again, the land was a type of the new heavens and new earth. And so in the end, the glory of God will fill all. The glory of God will fill all. All will be His temple. Uh, that is where the book of Revelation uh, ultimately takes us. Proposition number 11, Gentile believers should diligently seek a unified ecclesiastical fellowship with Jewish believers, rejoicing when Jewish believers are regrafted into Christ and consequently being immeasurably blessed in the world. And then... Uh, the flip side, Proposition 12, Jewish believers should diligently seek a unified ecclesiastical fellowship with Gentile believers, rejoicing in God's purpose of bringing additional Jews to faith in Jesus as their Messiah by moving them to jealousy through the blessing of Gentile believers. So in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female. It's not that these, these distinctions aren't real. There are Jews and there are Gentiles and there are males and females, but in Christ they are one. And so this should be reflected in our fellowships. We shouldn't be distinguishing between Jews and Gentiles uh, within, within the church, uh, which is the Israel of God under this new covenant era. Okay. Well, we had the discussion in the middle, didn't we? Any other questions with the few minutes we have remaining? Tom. Yeah, Jesus' remark to the, the woman, um, was she Samaritan? I forget. Samaritan woman, uh, yeah. I, I, I see Jesus as saying that tongue-in-cheek in order to test her faith, in order to demonstrate His willingness to bless her, because He ends up blessing her ultimately, doesn't He? 
So I think what he's doing is he's demonstrating before the Jews there that she is no dog at all and is to be shown mercy and grace. Uh, but, by mention, but, but by saying that, um, he tests her faith and also demonstrates to those around him that he has come to bless even, even the Gentiles, even the Samaritans are going to be blessed by him. But there's a kind of period of testing, a kind of showing that this way of thinking is not uh, to be Not, not, not to be had. Does that make sense, Tom, what I'm saying? Yeah, okay. Good. All right. Well, that didn't go the way I thought it was going to go, but I think that was beneficial. Uh, I hope it was for you. Let's pray, and then uh, we will prepare our hearts for corporate worship. Father in heaven, do help us to be careful students of your word. I pray that you would help us uh, to truly live for the new heavens and new earth to come. Help us to store up our treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy nor thieves will break in and steal. I pray, O oh God, that you would help us to live very carefully in this world as we belong to uh, the kingdom of, uh, a kingdom of this world in our context, the United States of America. And yet we belong supremely to Christ and to His kingdom. And Lord, we feel the tension we feel the tension that this brings. You have called us to be good citizens here, good neighbors seeking the good of our neighbor. And yet our allegiance, O oh God, is to you and to Christ. So help us with this, O oh Lord. Help us to not err and to pretend that the kingdom of Christ is of this world. Help us to see that it is truly not. And then, Lord, help us to live in a way that honors you supremely. And we know that our Christian brothers and sisters have struggled in this regard greatly in the past. Many have endured severe persecution, even death, as they lived within this tension. We know that some of our Christian brethren around the world are experiencing this extreme tension as well. Would you support them and sustain them, O Lord, that they would be faithful to Jesus Christ and serve Him as King? Lord, help us too. Help us, O Lord. Uh, to sojourn well in this world and to store up treasures in heaven. Help us also to proclaim Christ and His gospel uh, faithfully. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.